First John chapter 4, as we consider God's word under the heading, the Christian duty of discernment. First John chapter 4, the Christian duty of discernment. This morning, our concern is primarily with the first three verses, because uh, to treat the six verses would be too much, I believe. So we'll treat the first three, but because they are part of a whole, it's an entire pericope, a paragraph, a single line of thoughts, we'll read the entire six verses, but we are considering 1 John chapter 4, from verse 1 to 3. Let us read God's word. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Take it again. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's read the first three verses just one more time. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Let us pray. Master, speak. Your servants, listen waiting for your gracious word. We are listening now, O oh God, for thee. Please, tell us what you would say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian duty of the sermon. Some ten years ago, the Lord graciously saved me. And he did this primarily and largely through the ministry of Brother Paul Washer. So I had a friend at that time who was actually my pastor's son in MFM, who told me that he had discovered a preacher online and that I should listen to him. Listen to him. And so enthusiasm, because this is my very good friend, I listened to the sermons. And during that period, over a couple of three months or thereabouts, the Lord saved me. But I had two problems with Paul Washer. 
Two issues. The first issue I had with him, I did not fully understand until many years later what we now know as complementarianism. And the second issue I had with him was that one day, while I was listening to his sermon, he said Benny Hinn was a false teacher. That's what I like. And for many years after that time, I began to question who is real and who is not. I know everybody cannot be right. On the one hand, I am listening to Paul Washer, who says Ben Hinn is a false teacher, and on the other hand, I am listening to Ben Hinn and reading his books. How do I know what is right? And this was a problem for me because I couldn't distinguish between what was the right thing and what was the wrong thing. And I can imagine that some of us here this morning perhaps started attending this church because we are tired of your former church. You are tired of sitting at home listening to online sermons. You are just tired of many things. And somebody invited you one day or you saw the church online and you said, okay, this is where I'm going to. But still in your heart, you are still asking, are you sure? Are you sure that you threw away the other apostles and the other prophets? How do we know how to separate the good from the bad? Because everybody cannot all be good. And everybody cannot all be right. At the heart of this matter this morning is what we call discernment. Spiritual discernment. Biblical discernment. Christian discernment. And when we speak about discernment, we are talking about the ability to be able to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. The key word is distinguish. That in the midst of many options, we are able to say, this one is the con correct thing, the authentic thing, and this one is false. We'll be able to separate among many options and know what to hold on to. Discernment. If you recall, when we ended chapter 3, the apostle introduced us to the Holy Spirit for the first time explicitly in this episode. So look at verse 24. He says, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So for the first time, he has been alluding to the work of the Holy Spirit from chapter 1. But in chapter 3, he introduces us to the Holy Spirit explicitly. And I think what happened was, as he was writing and he took the Holy Spirit, he says, ah, but I want these people to know that it is not the, only the Holy Spirit that is in operation. That there is a Holy Spirit and that there are other spirits. So he takes a break from his thought, which he continues later on in verse chapter 4 on love. And he says, okay, now that I have introduced to you the Holy Spirit, I don't want you to be mistaken to think that everything you see is the Holy Spirit. I want you to know this, that there is a Holy Spirit and there are other spirits as well. But not more than that, I want you to be able to tell the difference between the operation of the Holy Spirit and the operation of these other spirits. And in light of this truth of the multiplicity, multiplicity of spirits, 
The apostle instructs us this morning in the duty and task of discernment by giving us the command to be discerning, by giving us the cause for this command, and a criterion for discernment. So in our text this morning, we will see John's command, John's cause or reason for this command, and John's criterion for discernment. Verse 1, the command to be discerned. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The apostle gives us this command in, in a twofold way. So this is really one command that is twofold in nature. Negatively, he says, do not believe every spirit. Positively, he says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Do not believe every spirit. The first question is, what are spirits? Now, there's a school of thoughts around this text that spirits means prophets. So John Calvin was one forerunner of this interpretation, the reformer. Now when we see spirits in 1 John chapter 4, 1 to 6, replace it with prophets, and they mean the same thing. Now, technically it's not wrong. If you replace every reading of spirit in this text with prophet, you still get the same idea. Right? So if you say, do not believe every prophet, or tell the prophets, it's not unbiblical. The Bible talks about it as well in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Thessalonians as well. Do not despise prophecies. So, but test everything. So it's not wrong biblically. But I think what the apostle is saying is that there are spirits and there are prophets. And these are two different things. There are spirits and there are prophets. Now, the way I come to this conclusion is how we ended chapter 3. He talked about the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And clearly what the apostle has in mind is the influencing role of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit enables us to do God's command and enables us to love. So he's talking about a force behind. He's talking about an influence behind. So when he talks about spirits and prophets here, he's talking about the spiritual influence behind prophecy or prophets. What John is saying here or how to understand this is to see it this way. That the Spirit is the source of inspiration and the prophet is the means of expression. In other words, in a popular Nigerian way, spirits speak through prophets. Or to put it another way, there is a spirit behind every utterance. That's what the apostle is saying. So men do not just speak. Men speak with a backing. There is something at work when a man stands up to preach or to teach or to carry out ministry. And the man or woman is a prophet and the spirit is the influence. So wherever there is a prophetic utterance, John tells us there is a spiritual influence. But then, lest we think prophet means just foretelling, what the apostle has in mind is foretelling. So there's a limited view of prophecy which we have today, which is that if a man is a prophet, you should tell me my bank account details or my phone number. Whereas biblically, prophets are mouthpieces. So look at the 12 prophets, whom we call the minor prophets. How many of them 
give bank account numbers, or even give future predictions so much. They were primarily those who preached. How many prophecies of Elijah do we record? Elijah was primarily a preacher to speak to the kings and the nation of Israel. So here, when he talks about prophets, he's speaking about a mouthpiece. So when you see spirits, that is the influence or the source of inspiration, and when you see prophet, it is the mouthpiece or means through which uh, uh, expression is found. And he tells us, do not believe everything you hear. Do not believe everything you hear. A Christian should be marked by an unwillingness to jump on every bandwagon, to affirm every new idea, to endorse every man of God, to retweet every tweet, or like every post on social media. This is what I call a healthy unbelief. A Christian should be careful. And I like the way he puts it. He says, do not believe every spirit. That means we have the responsibility not to jump. Apostle is a tie. Once a man has the title of apostle now, people don't say he's a general in the faith. <laughs> Once a man has the, the title prophet now, people say he, he's a man of God. And John is saying, don't believe every one of them. Do not jump at everything somebody says. You know, in our day, particularly in the church in Nigeria, there is a serious lack of discernment. I was on Twitter Friday, Saturday, and Brother Daniel Lushola, who runs the school in Joshua, retweeted something about somebody who was saying something like Joshua, Selman is the new TV Joshua. And so they came to the, to the comment section of that tweet. Don't you dare compare our apostle with TV Joshua. The problem is why? Why can't we compare them? Why? Recently, there has been the issue of miracle money that has really gripped much of Pentecostal charismatism in Africa. So on the one side of those who believe in miracle money are people like Hubert Angel, the Zimbabwean guy, and Emmanuel Makandiwa. And on the other side, Perhaps I'll put Chris Oyakilomi on that side. We'll call him. On the other side, of those who say that thing is really spiritual manipulation, are people like Arumi Osai and all of his children. And so people say, Arumi is right, but Uber Angel is wrong. My question is, how? How do you come to that conclusion? Because the same person who you are saying is right also says nonsense. So because he becomes right on one issue, does not make him right. Many of the things these men tell us are nothing more than fanciful children's stories. Nothing more. When you listen closely, they are nothing more than fanciful children's stories. You know those stories? That if you kiss a boy, you will get pregnant. If I'm going to expose any purity, I'm sorry. 
But our parents told us that if you kiss a boy, you get pregnant. If you swallow an orange seed, it will grow your tongue. And there are many, many other stories like that. My personal favorite, I remember, was a time when I was around primary, in primary two. And I was begging for grandma. So this was our custom. After school, I would go to the shop, my father's workshop, and then we'd go home at night. And so after school, the little boy, I asked for grandma's. And one of the elders there told me that she looked across the street, there's a man with his hand on his head. And I looked and I saw the man. And he told me that that man brought grandma today, he opened it and he didn't beat his hand. <laughs> and I stopped asking for grandma's. Automatically. Sometimes, what they tell us are those tales. Imagine that same man coming to meet me and tell me, if you're moving or not, I'll say you are crazy for thinking I'll believe that. Similarly, when we listen to these men, these prophets and apostles, and the rubbish that they, they, that they bring and propound, we should be able to say, you must think I'm crazy with my Bible in my hand to believe what you are saying. Do not believe everything here. But positively, test the spirits. Test the spirits. And what John is saying is, I will only endorse this thing or this person after I have carried out a successful examination. And the authorities tell us that the word that John uses for test in ancient Greek was used for metal workers who try to to get precious metal out of the ground and they test it by fire. So when you put the metal in fire, you are able to separate the impure from the pure. So you are able to remove the dross from the metal and you are able to have your gold or whatever you have, the precious metal that you want to have. And they say that the root for, for, of the word that John uses here is that when you are burning it, when you are trying it to remove the rubbish and keep what is authentic. The fire that those men use will reveal the true metal and remove the impure. Now, there's a wrong way to do this testing of every spirit. We will become unlicensed policemen. John is not saying come with a kind of antagonism to everything you hear. I'm not talking about those who are established false prophets now. But John is not saying come with a kind of antagonism. You know, there's a kind of antagonistic spirit. When somebody is preaching or teaching and you have a book to record the errors. That's not what John is saying. John is saying, like what Luke said of the Berians in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. He's saying that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the world with all eagerness. So in testing the spirit, we have to receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if the things we are hearing are so. It is not just a position of, you are always fighting. You know, I've said this thing a lot of times. You don't even understand what you are fighting. That's not what he said. There's a wrong way to do this, and there's a right way to do this. The wrong way is always, you are, you are ready to blow everybody. And you don't really listen to the person's position. It is right and proper for us to listen and test in light of scripture. Now, this same word is used of the apostle, by the Apostle Paul in many other places in a positive sense. So it has more of a positive sense than a negative sense, which is you, are, you really want to 
see if this thing is true. Your end is not merely to cut down this person or shatter this person, but to test what the person is saying to see if it is true. We have to become active listeners. The problem sometimes is that we don't really listen. And so how do you test when you don't listen? When it says test the spirits, which you find the expression through prophet, listen with eagerness. Once a man opens the Bible, listen and then put it through, pass it through the fire of God's word. This is beyond a test for results. In our day and age, there's a lot of emphasis on results. And it is true that when a man has results, people go to him. That's not what the Bible is saying. A man can actually have results and be, a, be an authentic false prophet. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, from verse 1 to 5. This is God speaking through Moses. He said, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you actually comes to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Oh, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, not because it was not real, not because there were no results, but because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. The test is not about whether what the person is saying happens. You know, you go to a meeting, and somebody is beside you and is telling you, I have stomach pain, but how do I confirm you have stomach pain? But I believe you, let me believe you. There's some result, now the stomach pain is gone. The, the mistake we make is to say, oh, stomach pain is gone. Correct. It is beyond the result, whether the prophecy comes to pass, it is beyond that, because some people in this country have said certain people will die and they died. Yes. Forget the one that said there will be will be and it did not happen. Forget that one. I'm talking about some people who have said some things that have come to pass. That is not the test. The test is what is the spirit behind this ultras? Is this genuine? Can we say that this thing is the work of God? And we want us to see something else. That this command is for everybody. Look at this form. There's one in the Bible. Beloved, the entire church, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, the question may be, is this for everybody or for some people? Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, the Apostle Paul said, to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another the various kinds of tongues, and it goes on. So he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the supernatural ability, which is the gifting, spiritual gifting, of being able to distinguish between spirits. But the same Paul, when it comes to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, says in verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything Hold fast what is good. 
So, yes, there is a special gift of discernment. And I have been deceived by this thing before. We're in a place which was wrong one time. And the man of God looked at the prayer units. I was part of them, so I was not away from I was I'm not deceived, I was part of them. So he looked at one of our sisters who was in prayer unit, and he said that this one has been given the spirit of the gift of discernment of spirits. I think what he was trying to do is that the rest of you cannot say this in Israel because we have somebody who has the gift of discernment. So there's somebody here. So whatever happens, you can go and ask miracle. That was her name. Ask miracle what is happening. And then we'll go to miracle and we get the confirmation. I will say, correct. Man of God, you are right because miracle has confirmed it. But the John is saying this is something that is a responsibility for every single person in the church. It is not for the pastor or the teacher. Sometimes when I'm online and I see people ask pastors questions, I'm like, you think this man does not have a job? Sometimes people ask, sir, on the comment section, what do you think of this? What do you think of? What do you think of that? What do you think of that? And so believers now leave this issue of discernment to the pastor. Pastor, I was listening to this person, is this correct? Also, in the school teacher, I was listening to this, is this correct? This duty of discernment, this command is for everybody in church. Once you say, I am a Christian, you have the duty to discern and distinguish between spirits. Fathers, your children come home from school and they tell you that this is what happened or they put anointing oil on that. It is your responsibility to say this stops so. No, it's not, it's not correct. Mothers, when you are at home, your child is singing a song that you don't understand where it's coming from. It is your responsibility. You don't carry the child to the pastor or to the Sunday school teacher and report the child. It is your responsibility to say this is wrong and set those children aright. In the second place, he gives us the cause or reason why he gives this command. Verse 1b. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. For many false prophets. It's as if John was writing about Nigeria. <laughs> Ten years ago, you could have counted the number of major prophets and apostles in this country. Now you can't. Small boys and girls, apostles and prophets, and they speak with a territorial authority. They speak, and they, are, they, they speak with so much bravado. And John says, the reason why there are plenty. Take an assessment of Nigeria. Just in this Sun City estate alone, there are plenty. And when you step out, there's a proliferation of false teachers. Now, I think this was necessary because of... This, this happened a lot then because of the time the church was in. If you, if you remember, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, one of the major issues he's had, he had was these guys were actually very gifted. And so there was a lack of order. So one of the things that probably marked all of these churches was that you would come to a church service and there are many, many things happening. And so, there are many things happening. Things are happening. And it's necessary to say, oh, come on. Not everybody who speaks this way is actually speaking from the Spirit of God. But this wasn't a local problem. He says they've gone out into the world. It is as if, with the spread of the Gospel, 
is a like a matching spread of falsehood. Now, being from America, look at Africa and say, okay, a hundred years ago we had this percentage of professing Christians, and then today we have this percentage. Christianity is growing all fake. Half of it, if not three quarter of what we call Christianity in Africa, is fake. It is false. It is not Christianity at all. It is shared. It just takes the name, but in it is empty. And this is the case across the world. Look at Nigeria. We have exported our Christianity to Zambia, to South Africa, to Egypt. We are even building branches in the US and in Europe. There's a, there, 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 many of them. Many. So that if you see a man who says, I'm a man of God, at least five of them are false. Many have gone out into the world. This was the sentiment of Paul when he was leading the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. When he tells them very, very, very strong words, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. This was a young church. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not scaring the flock. And from among your own selves, not even outsiders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. We see this in the form of Roman Catholicism today. Where you have a billion people, or almost, holding to that false form of Christianity. You see this in Mormonism today, where millions of people hold on to that aberrant form of Christianity. You see this in the world of faith and prosperity gospel today, where there are millions of people who hold on to that. And you see this in much of today's Pentecostal charismatic movement. I was born in a Pentecostal church. And the things that happen today, they will never have happened in my church. Never. Yes, you say, Apex, the five, the fivefold ministry. But never was the next thing called himself an apostle. Except it's the church planter. So this is the cause of this command. We are in trouble. Everywhere we turn, there is falsehood. But then he thought this gives us the criterion for the sermons. The criterion for the sermons. Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Let this just by this you know the Spirit of God. Again, he emphasizes this fact of it is you. Not your elders, not your pastors, not your teachers. By this you sitting down in church Sunday after Sunday can look at something and know. You can recognize. You can discern. You can distinguish. You can come to a conclusion on your own. In your bedroom, as you're on your phone, and something pops up, and a man is in the mind that when he finds suits, and he's speaking rubbish, you can know. You can know. The sermon is for believers. I can't emphasize this enough. But he said, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
At first glance, this looks very simple. Everything that confesses that Jesus, Paul says, no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So all it takes is for a man to say Jesus is Lord. But it's not so simple. A few months ago, I listened to a popular uh, preacher in Josh, you may know him, you may not know him, who used to be more sound than 15 years ago than he is now. He's affiliated with Rabbi's ministry, so you know him, you know him. And he said, when you come to this text, it is not what they say that you test, but the spirit behind what they say. And he spoke about this at length, that it is the spirit you test. So the problem is, how do I test the spirit? So we'll go back to Sister Miracle. Because she has the gift of the seven. What he's saying, what John is saying, is that you can actually test with your ears. Remember, he was saying, do not believe what you hear. Do not believe every spirit. So the way to test and know which spirit to believe and which spirit not to believe is with the ear. And he says it's a confession. Now, I want to say this. This is not the only test of falsehood that is found in Scripture. In fact, in the entire book of 1 John so far, in our journeys, it has been, in our journey through the book, it has been test after test. So the same test that John gives for false Christians is the same test for false teachers. In chapter 1, he was dealing with the issue of sin and saying that we don't sin. That's falsehood. In chapter 2, he came to deal with the issue of the commandments, obedience to the commands. When a man teaches that there's no need for obedience for a woman, that's falsehood. He talked about the Antichrist, those who seem to follow Christ but are opposing, that's a test for falsehood. In chapter 3, we looked at the issue of sin and law, that's also a test for falsehood. But I think what John is doing here now, he's giving us the almighty test. When we were in secondary school, some of us in the university, there's something called the almighty formula. And when I was in junior secondary school, I used to think that this formula solved every problem. Right? But they were trying to tell you that this is the shortest one. That even if the answer is not a whole number and it is 3.2, maybe x is 5.47, this is sure banker. John gives us this almighty formula. Yes, you can test falsehood through many ways, but this one is like the, the, the almighty, the one with which you can really test falsehood even at the door. And he said, you confess. So what does it mean? Does it mean merely to say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? No. Because in the time of Jesus, when he was casting out demons, they were shouting, son of David. They were saying, we know who you are. They were actually, in fact, worshipping him in a sense. One time they begged him, it is not merely to say. You can learn from the sons of Sceva. In the name of Jesus, of course, I'm using the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached. So, the name of Jesus on your lips does not mean you are a Christian. Or that you are teaching the truth. To confess in this place is to acknowledge. And it is from that acknowledgement that you have a heartfelt profession. So the part where Paul says no one can know, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, no man can genuinely say it. A man can be doing whatever he's doing from the back and be saying it. It's not a true, it doesn't mean he's a true teacher. 
A man can say it out of deceit to get money from people. He doesn't mean he's a true prophet. But for somebody to genuinely say it from the heart, and not just that, to match that profession with a sold-out life to Christ. So that when a person is saying, I am confessing, you are seeing it. It's not just to say it flippantly. It is from the heart and involves the whole life of a person. This is not like the Shahada. Many years ago, I began to get interested in Islam. Providentially, I got my hands on some books of Muslim on Islam. And then I was reading the five pillars. And they said, you say this, you are a Muslim. And I said, okay, let me just say, let me see if anything will happen. So I said, nothing happened. <laughs> Maybe I'm a Muslim standing here. <laughs> it is not just, just saying it. But that there is a heartfelt profession. And he says, the person says, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In the time of John, the primary issue was Christological, which is that many teachers began to teach at that time that the person or the man Jesus was not truly man. So it, it was a kind of dualistic teaching then called Gnosticism, filled by Greek mysticism and paganism at that time. So they draw an unnecessary distinction between the body and the soul. So the body is evil and the soul is good, is spiritual. And at death, what happens is that your good soul is separated from your evil body. And so in some of their heads, they began to think that because the body is evil, if God were to come down on earth, he would not take a body. Because the body is evil. That was the heart of their teaching. So when John was saying this to them, he was saying, anybody amongst you who says that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, or has not come in the flesh, is a false person. But it's deep. Because the Bible teaches that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says in John chapter 1, that we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. If you deny that Jesus became flesh, you automatically deny the entirety of Christianity. Because you have to ask yourself, why did he become flesh? In 1 John 3, 5, John tells us, he says, you know that he was manifested to take him in sins. And if he was not manifested at all, he didn't, he didn't become man at all, then we are yet in our sins. There's no such thing as salvation. If Jesus came as a phantom, there's no such thing as salvation. Because we needed a representative like us to die on our behalf. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might be seeing the adoption of sons. And when he went up on the cross, he was like that scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16. He bore our sins literally. The same way Aaron or the high priest would lay their hands and confess the sins of the people upon that goat, Jesus bore our sins and died on the cross. That's why he came. To deliver sinful mankind from their sins. And not just that. He remains man. Because there are different types of false teaching. He came and he died. But at the point he was dying, the spirit left, right? So who was being buried was Jesus the man, 
But the Christ himself is now in heaven and the body is new. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, they looked at him as he was ascending to heaven in his resurrected and glorified body. It looks simple. But then, to deny the implications of all of this is to be in heaven and falsehood. It's not just to say Jesus is Lord and is now come. Because there are many people on the streets today who will tell you, yes, Jesus came in the flesh. The problem now is, the things that accompany the coming of Jesus in the flesh, do you affirm it? In other words, some people want to draw a dichotomy between the person of Jesus and the work of Christ. They want to separate the person and the work, and you can't do it. Because the person came because of the work. Without the work, I don't know why God will send his son. It would have maybe fruitless, maybe he's trying to experiment something, no. But because of his work, Christ came. So when you are confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you are confessing as well that all of the things that happened with his coming is true. So a few questions for false teachers. Do they say that salvation is freely by grace? Sometimes we think it's a small issue. Well, that's not a small issue. Paul called the Galatians foolish because of this issue. Judaizers went among the early church teaching that, okay, well, Christ has come, right? And he has died for our sins, but then you have to add your works. It's falsehood. Let's call it what it is. Even if the person packs 500,000 people, when the person says that the work of Christ is not sufficient for salvation, it's a false teacher. When the person says it is not enough that Christ died, I need to add something, and add something, and add something. The person is automatically a false teacher. He doesn't have to give prophecy. Does he affirm, or does she affirm, that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? It seems like a funny issue that Joel Austin went on public television and said he does not know. He's a false prophet for saying that. Because what you do at that moment is to say that Jesus is one of the options. That God sent his son, yes, but it was not necessary. The atonement was not necessary. So if you like believe in Buddha, just live a good life, you're going to be a false prophet, sir. When a person equivocates about Christ, today you are with Christ. Tomorrow you are with the Imam. Next tomorrow you are here. You are with everybody. You are ecumenical. You are a false prophet. But with the same mouth you say you are evangelical. And you invite somebody that dresses in white to come up. Once the work of Christ in his entirety is not being confessed and affirmed, that person is a false teacher. Does she teach that salvation is from sin or that salvation is from poverty? A false prophet. Because you have taken the entire work of the Son of God and you have bastardized it upon your greed. Very false prophet. And if you are listening to them, you are aiding and abetting falsehood. That's what the Bible says. When a man steps up on the pulpit and says, Oh, bring your money in. Bring your money in. Bring your money in. Because Jesus died so that you will not be poor. You are a false prophet. Recently, something happened in one church that some, one of our men used to be a pastor. And <laughs> he had Aaron on side 
come for a conference, an international conference. And because of this money, miracle money issue, he came up and said he's with Arumen. And he pointed and said, people that do the first are also a first prophet. Yes. All these distinguishes that we see, they are just rubbish. If you're not teaching the authentic gospel, you are not taking the work of Christ and teaching it in its entirety. That God sent his son to save men from their sins. That's what the Bible says. When you take it away and turn it to prosperity and wealth and health and everything that the Bible does not talk about is falsehood. There's no, there's no nice name for it. It is falsehood, clearly from the Bible. You see, Jesus Christ is not just at the heart of the gospel. He's the whole of the gospel. There's a reason why we are called Christians. Because we are of Christ. And John Calvin put it this way. He says, Jesus Christ is the stone upon which all heretics stumble. Ask them what they think of Christ. Ask them what is their theology of Christ. I don't care so much about miracles. Let me hear how a man can be saved from his sins. Let me hear it. The person you just healed, he will have accident tomorrow. I want to hear how a man can deal with the eternal state of his soul. That's it. Ask him, how do we go to heaven? How are we reconciled to God after the fall of Adam? And when the man evokes, we can touch him out. Yes, open your laptop. That foggy folder of those men, delete it. Yes, delete the apps. Delete the sermons. When a person does not stand this test of Christ and his gospel, is a false teacher. And he says, in closing, that they are the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist. Mm. We've looked at this before, so we won't spend much time on it. But basically, what the Antichrist is, is that they will pretend to be for Christ, but they are really opposing Christ. Mm. Oh, these men are really opposing Christ. Including the one that has a miracle service this evening. Mm. They are opposing Christ. How can you gather thousands of people and say you are gathering them in the name of Christ, but there is no gospel? You tell them from your experience, you tell them from African proverbs and wisdom, but there is no Christ. They go home thinking we have been blessed because there was loud music and the man shouted upon us and we said amen, but nothing happened to their souls. Those are false prophets. They pretend to be for Jesus, but they are really against him. When a man baptizes the gospel, he's against Jesus and not for him. And he's a false prophet, properly. And he's an antichrist. He's a forerunner to the main antichrist coming. He's the, the boy of the main antichrist. A few concluding thoughts before we go. Friends, we must take this seriously. This issue of falsehood and truth, we must take it seriously. My brother-in-law works in the bank. And when you come to a bank, people usually come to deposit false, fake money. And what they do when they are employed is they are trained on how to identify the fake from the authentic. So that when a person comes to deposit fake money, you first, you can feel it that it's fake. And there are some lights that you can use to look at the money and see if it's fake. Of course, at the first time, you will not always get it. The worst that can happen to you, your salary will reduce, you will be penalized one way or the other, or at most, you lose your job. When a man believes in false teaching, 
It's not salary that's at stake. It's not a job that's at stake. It's a soul. Many people will appear on that day thinking, but I was a Christian. But I used to serve in the church. That's why this is serious. Souls are at stake. Millions of souls are at stake when falsehood spreads. And we cannot form ignorance. We have been warned. If you are not falsehood in your family, it is on your head. If you are not falsehood in your house, it is on your head. If you are not falsehood in your church, because when Paul was speaking to this official elder, he said it's among you. Somebody will rise. And he will get disciples for himself. It is your responsibility. It's like, this is your everyday job to ensure that falsehood does not thrive. To ensure that falsehood is stopped at its tracks. It does not spread. It is your responsibility because souls are at stake. People long for the truth. And many are getting what they think is the truth that is really poison. Souls are at stake. And if you are holding on to false teeth, I care for your soul. Yes. If you are here and you still have apostles and prophets and all of those people, and after service you go somewhere, or you join some prayer by 7 a.m., I fear for your soul because you are, you are basically playing with the devil. When a man fails this test, when a woman fails, forget how popular they are. Oh, they have a big stadium, field, they must be a man of God. No, he said, but not for a field stadium. We still a field stadium. There is not a field stadium. It is not the number of followers that matter. It is this test of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must be, we must be sure of the Jesus we believe. Be sure of the Jesus. If there's something you're going to take home today, ask yourself, with Jesus, do I believe? With Jesus, do I believe? Do I believe in the incarnate Son of God who became man, who went up on the cross and offered his righteous life for the sake of sinners? Have I come to put my faith in him and in that work? Do I believe that he died for my sins? To deal with that lostness in my soul. And when it was done, he ascended up to heaven and one day he's coming to take me home. Do I believe it? Have I put my faith in this Jesus of the Bible? If I have not, oh, there's an opportunity for you today to look upon the authentic Christ who came to take away sins and put your trust in him. And leave all those false ways and put your trust in him. Be sure of the Jesus you believe. But as I close, one more, one more, one more word of, of encouragement and conclusion. As I was thinking about these matters, it became more apparent to me about the need we have to pray for our pastors and our teachers. There's the assumption, right? I'm a pastor, I've read the institutes. He's good. But my Sunday school teachers. They go to seminary. It's good. False teaching comes in a church slowly. It's an assumption that, oh, he has gone to say, yeah, he's good. He reads his Bible again. He's good. We sang a hymn earlier today by a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. 
Now, Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in the United States. And as a lawyer, he was fairly successful. He had some businesses. As time went on, one of his sons, who was four years old, died of scarlet fever. The next year, there was a great Chicago fire in 1871, and all of his investments burnt down. He lost his son, 1870, 1871, the real estate, everything burnt down in the great Chicago fire. Two years later, in a way just to rest, he said, okay, madam, his wife and his four daughters go to Europe from America and go and rest. And they were on that ship, and there was an accident, and four daughters died. Four daughters died in one day. So the wife settles in Europe and writes back to her husband, and he was broken. On his way back to Europe, on his way to Europe to see his wife, he passed by that place where his daughters died and he penned those hymns. There were no hymns written by somebody who is drinking a cup of coffee. He looked at where his four daughters died and he says, My sin. He said it. But they went back to America. He was a friend of Dion in the Presbyterian and he started the cult. So that the man who saw me sing grand thoughts, my sins, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. Not in part, but the whole. So they went to Jerusalem. Dear Moody encouraged them after they lost their child. You know, Dear Moody was a famous, famous preacher who lived on both America and, and Europe. And who also knew Spurgeon. So he was not a false teacher. He was quite good to a large extent. Except his Arminianism, anyways, but he's and I encouraged them. And so they said, what God is leading them to do is to go to Jerusalem. So him and his wife then, I think they had another, another child, they went to Jerusalem and they started a cult. At the end of this man's life, they were telling people not to get married. They were seizing the daughters of people. And he died, basically, a heretic. False teaching will be appealing to your teacher at some point. Because a time will come, maybe when the church is not growing, and the pastors and the leaders may think, well, why don't you just treat this? It's not a serious problem. Pray for them. And Father, we ask that you take this words we've heard, plant it deep in our hearts, and cause that it will bring more fruits to us. Amen. Amen.